the unfolding of our li- <coughs> excuse me the unfolding of our lives can be seen to originate in our minds Buddha spoke of the mind being the forerunner of all things. You see how in many respects the whole world and our way of being in the world is created in our minds. We have certain desires and so we're in relationships. We have certain patterns in the mind which determine or condition the nature of the relationship. We have certain ideas or visions and we create buildings and books and works of art and societies and governments. It all has its origin, it all has its beginning in the creative process of mind. We could look upon meditation as that exercise which seeks to understand and explore and investigate the nature of this dynamic, creative, continually transforming energy which is mind. The mind is not something static, it's not something fixed. It's an energy which is in continual process of transformation It's continually being conditioned and reconditioned according to each moment's experience. So in meditation we look at that. We take a very direct and and intuitive, which means that it's not particularly discursive, it's not analytical, it's not thinking about it. Rather it's very direct and experiential in terms of understanding how this creative process of mind works. We can see how our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions and our bodily sensations condition us or inspire us to move, to do, to act in various ways. Those actions come from our experience. They're inspired by our experience. Begin to see our reactions in the mind. The reactions of love, of hate, of anger, of generosity, of concentration, of mindfulness, of slothfulness. All of these are conditioning forces in the mind. They condition this energy in a particular way. They each have a particular coloring for the mind. So as we pay attention, as we look at all these conditioning forces, we begin to get a sense of what it is that leads to more suffering and more contraction and more tightness and what it is that leads to more openness and to more freedom. Vipassana means the meaning of the word is to see things clearly or to see things as they are. And that's what we do in our practice. 
we settle back into the moment to see clearly what is it that's actually happening. Not our interpretation, not our comments, not our analysis, not our comparisons, but just a direct connection, a direct openness to what's there. And not only to what's there in the moment, but we also begin to get a sense of the laws which govern the unfolding process. Because it's all happening lawfully. Whether we look at our own unfolding process, the process of the world, it's not happening accidentally. So as we investigate and open, we can begin to intuit, can begin to understand for ourselves both what it is that's happening and certain of the laws which are governing the unfolding. One of the laws which I've mentioned before and which plays such a critical role in our lives and in our understanding is the law of karma. That is, depending on the motive behind our actions, certain results will follow. How can we experience the law of karma so that somehow we can bring it down from a theoretical, abstract idea, which may be interesting enough, but how can we actually touch it, experience it in our practice and in our lives? There are several ways that we can begin to get intimations of how this law of karma is working. The first way is to be aware of how our present mind state conditions our view of experience. That is, our mind states act like filters on our experience. And so, if we're very depressed and down and discouraged, we could be in the most beautiful place, the most beautiful surroundings, and it will seem very gloomy, because our mind state is gloomy. And if our mind state is bright and clear and sharp and alert and joyous, we could be in the most horrendous surroundings, and there will be that sense of clarity and joy and lightness. So there's a kind of present karma at work. That is how our mind state conditions our experience of the moment. We can also see it in another way. That is by paying attention to how we feel when we do certain actions. And I don't mean whether it's pleasurable or painful, but rather how we feel in terms of mm, harmony. When we do certain things, in the nature of the action, it feels disharmonious. When I was a student at university, I was living in New York City in a rather 
grungy student apartment and I didn't very much help eradicate the grunge. (laughs) And as in many grungy New York apartments, there were a lot of cockroaches. What to do? In those days, it was before my Dharma days, see a cockroach, squish into the toilet. It never felt good. Even though I didn't like living with them, even then, before I knew anything about Buddha Dharma or practice or meditation, just in the very act itself, there was something that felt, it didn't feel good, it didn't feel right. Likewise, when we do something motivated by uh, generosity or love or kindness or compassion, there's a good feeling associated with that. And again, it's not necessarily pleasure. It's not a pleasure in the body. It's not a sense pleasure. But there's a kind of harmoniousness in the mind, harmony in the mind. That's another kind of present karma which we can experience. It's not something that's abstract or theoretical. It really is a question of paying attention. How do our actions affect our mind? There's another way we can begin to get a sense of the power of this karmic law. And it's one which you probably have touched quite deeply in your time here. And that is the awareness of how the mind retains impressions of past actions. You know, we think very often in our ordinary lives that we do something and it's gone, it's finished. And so we don't pay much attention, or so much attention, to its wholesomeness or not. But we come and we get quiet, and we start looking inward, and we see that it's all in there. You know, even actions from years and years ago, we thought have been long lost, suddenly start emerging. And these past actions, depending on whether they were wholesome or unwholesome, can be the conditioning cause of either tremendous remorse or tremendous joy, well-being. That's another way of experiencing the truth of the law of karma. We see that our actions not only have an effect in the moment, but they also create this impression in the mind which we re-experience when we're open enough and sensitive enough. we experience karma in another way. And again, it happens sometimes very clearly in meditation practice, where in the practice itself, we begin to experience what seem like very direct karmic results of a particular action. There's one rather gruesome story that Upandita told, which... I'll just pass on to you. It seems that um, this Burmese person came to the center there to meditate, and he had been a police officer, police chief. Um, He was kind of fighting the insurgents. There are groups of insurgents in Burma 
rebelling against the government. And they had captured this one insurgent. And I guess it's not so uncommon there. In order to get him to both confess and you know, implicate the other people involved, they used this kind of torture of uh, having water drop on his head. You know, just drop, drop, drop. It's like the Chinese water torture. And this police chief or officer was the one who ordered it done. And that had happened years ago. He came to the center, the meditation center, to practice. And as his practice started getting deeper, he started experiencing this excruciating pain now in the top of his skull, and also kind of like this band or vice around his head, which they had used to hold the prisoner's you know, head firm. And those very sensations, you know, which he had caused to happen to another person, he started experiencing very, very intensely. Upandita said that it was, you know, it was in the category of unbearable sensation, which we've all had at different times. And it was just the connection was so clear both to the, both to the meditator and, and to the teachers involved. Sometimes you can see that very direct uh, karmic result. This is not to suggest that you start thinking about what gruesome acts you've done <laughs> you know, to deserve the uh, stabbing and searing and burning and whatever. But sometimes it just intuitively, you know, it connects with something. And that's a very dramatic example. But it's another way of understanding experientially how the law of calm is working. That is, affects us in the moment. Just the quality of our minds in doing certain actions. Or how the quality of mind affects our awareness, affects our our perceptions. We experience it in terms of retaining impressions of our past actions and then coming again to mind, experiencing either remorse or joy about them. We're experiencing the karmic results, sometimes very clearly in practice. And another way that we can understand karma experientially it's a phrase that that was used by this new age biologist Rupert Sheldrake who was evolving a lot of very interesting theories in biology which are very dharmic one of his theories is something called morphic resonance And to greatly simplify the whole theory, it basically says that once something happens, it's easier for it to happen again. It's more likely for it to happen again. There's an inclination for it to happen again. And in some way, that has something to do with karma. Because each of our actions conditions a certain pattern. 
we do something, and the fact that we've done it makes it easier for that kind of action to arise in the future. So whether it's an act of desire, an act of anger, or an act of concentration, or an act of mindfulness, every time it's done, it makes it easier for it to happen repeatedly. So that's another kind of karmic consequence of our actions. All of this is a prelude to the main topic of tonight's talk. Because it's only when we understand this law of karma, and again, not just as a theory, not just as some idea, but we really begin to understand it in terms of our experiencing, of our experience, how it's working in our lives. Then we can fully appreciate the need to take responsibility for our actions. Because we understand in a deeper way, in a more complete way, that our actions actually bring certain results. They're not isolated incidents. They're not isolated acts. So we begin to take responsibility for what we do. We begin to take responsibility for our lives. But in order to do this, in order to take responsibility for our lives and our actions, it's not sufficient even to appreciate the law of karma on an experiential level. And the first step is to bring it from the intellectual level down to, yes, it's actually true, I can experience it in these ways. But even that is not sufficient for us to really take responsibility. We need some power, we need some energy, we need a certain kind of strength in the mind to actually implement that understanding. Otherwise it remains a good idea. And I'd like to take more responsibility, but it doesn't quite happen. Because we need a a certain power in the mind, a certain strength in the mind to be able to do it. And the power or strength of the mind, the particular energy in the mind which enables us to manifest this understanding is the strength and the power of restraint. Now, restraint in English is a word and an idea that has gotten very bad press. When we say restraint, either to ourselves or to others, generally, we don't like that idea very much. And we think that it has a lot of unwholesome or negative implications. We tend to confuse it with suppression. 
pushing something down, or aversion, not liking something, condemning something, or self-judging, self-condemning. Right? There's something going on, we condemn it, and so we restrain, we, we contract away from it. Restraint or renunciation, truly understood, involves none of those things. It is not suppression. Suppression is the denying or not acknowledging that something is present. Now, we can be filled with rage, and suppression would be, I'm not angry. (laughs) The anger is just oozing out of us. That's not what restraint is. That's just denying or repressing. The power of restraint, again, it can be understood in different ways, different, it manifests in, in a variety of ways. One way is the ability of the mind to say no to what is unskillful. The ability of the mind to let go of an unskillful act. And it's saying no, not with aversion. And it's saying no, not with a self-condemning and not with hatred. It's saying no with a sense of humor. It's saying no with lightness. It's saying no with gentleness. A desire comes up in the mind that we know is going to cause suffering. Do we have the resources, do we have the strength to say no? I'm not going to do that. It's learning how to say no in the same way that we would say no to a child who is about to do something that's going to be harmful. Ideally, you wouldn't get angry. You know, it's a two-year-old kid. You know, you don't get angry, you don't clobber it over the head. Ideally. But also you exercise some strength there. You say, no, no, that's not a good idea. We will be doing very well and probably truly understand ourselves if we treat our mind as if it's a two-year-old. Because that's about, that's about at least my mind. And so when we see these impulses, when we see desires or motives for things that we know are going to cause suffering, that we know are unskillful, that we know are harmful, can we practice this quality of restraint? This quality of saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And again, not with aversion. And it's not with the self-judgment implied. It really has to do with a lot of gentleness and humor and wisdom and understanding. Restraint, in this sense, is the opposite of addiction. Now, our minds become very addicted. They become addicted to thoughts. How addicted are we to planning, to judging, to fantasizing? You know very well how easily addicted the mind becomes. It becomes addicted to certain emotional responses. We can become addicted to anger, 
or addicted to lust. Restraint is the antidote to that addiction because we practice saying, no, I'm not going to do that. It's realizing that it's okay to say no to the mind. That that actually can be a very wholesome, skillful attitude. Because what we're doing is letting go or renouncing those patterns which bring us pain or bring other people pain and suffering. But it takes a certain effort and it takes a certain energy to break this addictive pattern of mind, which is what we practice. We practice doing it. So that's one element of restraint. It's letting go or renouncing or saying no to that which is unskillful. There's another meaning of restraint. And that has to do with conservation. It's a quality of conservation of energy. Now, as we practice, and as you've experienced now over these last months, what happens is that there is a build-up of energy. There's a build-up of momentum. We can feel the increased energy in our system the more we practice. But sometimes this feels like a stretch. You know, it's like our energy body is expanding, it's growing, it's developing. It's like a balloon. It's like blowing up a balloon and the the balloon stretches and stretches and stretches. As this is happening, often we begin to feel a little uncomfortable with it. We're not used to it. We're not accustomed to accommodating that much energy. And so it really feels like it's kind of pushing at our edges, our boundaries. Very often, because it feels a little uncomfortable, because we don't like feeling the stretch so often, we find ways of leaking that energy, letting a little air out of the balloon, so it feels a little easier. We feel not quite so stretched. How do we do that? I'm sure you could write a book on (laughs) how the mind does that. Just some very common ways, you know, kind of leaking the energy, the energy buildup. We start talking. Big energy leak. Doing reading. A lot of writing. Energy leaks. Ten cups of tea a day energy leak. Fifteen times at the bulletin board, energy leak. Restraint means restraining from those actions which allow the energy to dissipate. And so that instead of it going out, in the the Buddhist vocabulary, this, this is called outflows. And all the ways, or all the kinds of outflows that we have, 
Restraint in this sense means conserving. It's not so much, you know, renouncing something that's unwholesome. And there's nothing inherently unwholesome about talking or writing or reading. But rather it's restraint in the sense of conserving. We conserve this energy. We allow it to build up. We allow it to get stronger. We're willing to stretch even more. And as we do that, our system grows to accommodate this expanded energy. And we become stronger and more powerful. The potential for opening becomes greater. Sometimes in the West, in our, in our way of viewing things, I think we sometimes make a polarity between either expressing our energy, that we're either expressing it or repressing it. And those are the two choices open to us. As in many, as in many things, the Buddha, the Buddha spoke of a middle way. And in this case, it's not particularly expressing it, And it's not repressing it. But rather, it's opening to, it's feeling this build-up of energy. It's allowing that to happen and allowing it to grow, allowing it to get stronger. We don't have to act on it, and we don't want to push it down or, or dissipate it. Restraint. Restraint means letting go of what's unskillful, that quality of renunciation. It means conserving our energy, letting it build. There's a third aspect of restraint. And this, this third aspect leads to a very profound change in our understanding. When we're not so plugged in or locked in to our desires or to our wanting mind, it allows us the ability to settle back to see the impermanence and insubstantiality of phenomena. When we're continually wanting when we're continually acting on the outflows, acting on our desires, on our wants, it tends to solidify the sense of self. It solidifies the world. We don't see so clearly the momentariness, the the insubstantiality of phenomena, the fact that everything is arising and dissolving momentarily. And it's the power of restraint in the mind which allows us to settle back and simply to observe. And in that observation of phenomena, we get a very deep sense, deep experience of the selflessness. Because we're not identifying with those patterns of the mind. We're not acting on those patterns. We're not solidifying those patterns. It is restraint which allows us to get unplugged 
It allows us to get disentangled from phenomena. It's ignorance and craving. Ignorance and craving, which is keeping this cycle of perpetual wandering, this cycle of samsara going. And it's wisdom and renunciation. It's wisdom and restraint, wisdom and letting go, which brings the suffering to an end. There's one verse in the Buddhist teachings which expresses this wisdom of disentanglement. It says, see all of this world as a star at dawn, a bubble in a stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom, and a dream. Those are very strong images when we actually connect them to our experience. See all of this world, all of this world as a flash of lightning. As a bubble. As a phantom. What's our relationship to a flash of lightning? Do you try to hold on to it? I hope not. All of this comes about through cultivating the power of restraint. So it's important, I think, that we really look at what it means in our lives and in our experience and come to a truer understanding of it than is usual in our, in our society or culture or even language. So we don't confuse it with those un, unskillful aspects which are often associated with it, like aversion or judgment or suppression or repression, because it's none of those. It's a very positive, skillful, strengthening, empowering factor. How to cultivate it? How to cultivate this strength and power in our lives? There are different ways. One very obvious way is through appreciating and practicing cultivating the precepts. The precepts really are an expression of certain basic restraints. I take the training rule not to kill. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say no to the mind if it has the impulse to squat the mosquito. It's an act of restraint which gives power. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to commit sexual misconduct. I'm not going to intoxicate the mind, delude myself. I'm not going to lie. And taking the precepts in a formal way and in a committed way, very powerful seeds in the mind so that when those impulses arise, 
and they will arise for a long time down the road. But having taken the precepts in a committed way, when they do arise, those precepts arise in the mind as a check. It strengthens that power of restraint in that moment. Because we remember, I'm not going to do that. We're able to say no. We can also work not not only with the formal precepts, but just practicing in little things this loving no. And again, the loving part is very important because we tend to be very self-judgmental. And we don't want to be practicing this in a way that increases that. So it has to be loving. It has to be done with a sense of humor. Just little things. You know, take a few little things that you might do during the day and when that desire comes up with a nice inner smile, say, no, no, not going to do that. I'm not going to have this cup of tea. I'm not going to look at the bulletin board. Whatever. It can just be little things, but in that practice we learn that we have that strength of mind to do it. We begin to connect with that space in the mind. And as we connect with it and get more familiar with it, we see that there's a tremendous power involved in that. We do not have to be the slave of every thought or every feeling or every emotion or every desire. That there's another place in the mind from which to operate. So we practice it. Another way to develop it, the power of restraint, is to work with the cultivation of contentment and simplicity in our lives. We can begin to see that a much greater happiness comes from contentment and simplicity than the gratification of desire. The third way of developing restraint is through strengthening the power of concentration and mindfulness. That is, opening in each moment to what is actually there. Because in that moment, the mind is not reaching out, it's not grasping, it's not clinging, there are no outflows whether it's the breath or a sensation or a thought or an emotion or a sound, whatever object there is in experience, in every moment of concentrated awareness, the mind becomes stabilized. It's not pulled out. It's not addictive. And so this quality of renunciation, the quality of restraint, gets very strong. Sometimes in the practice, when the concentration, the samadhi is is deep, sometimes it feels almost as if one is at the bottom uh, of an ocean, on the ocean floor, and all the different kinds of turbulence may be happening on the surface, 
There may be huge storms on the surface. And we're aware that they're there, but not caught up in them. It's like the mind is resting in the depth, in the stillness, in the peace. And that very much is a function of our deepening concentration, our deepening mindfulness. We can bring our minds to a place where they are very still and very silent, not unaware of everything that's going on, but not reactive, not pulled out, not caught, not entangled. And so our meditation practice itself develops this this strength of restraint. When we are not so caught up in our desires, when we're not so driven by the wanting mind, when we're not so entangled in a sense of solidity of self, of I, of me, what happens is that we find ourselves in a much more spacious place to manifest creatively and spontaneously in the world. We're not so bound, we're not so tight, we're not so locked in. As the restraint grows, the space opens up and we find that we can begin to manifest, we manifest love and compassion and kindness much more easily, much more spontaneously because we're not being driven by our wants, driven by our desires, driven by certain habit patterns of mind. There's more space to move and we can move with greater integrity and greater grace and greater freedom. Generosity becomes easier. When we're not wanting so much, generosity becomes a natural expression of that space. But it's very important, even as this begins to happen more freely and easily, we have to watch our motives. There's one story, a generosity story, which points to this. Gurdjieff, who was this great teacher, Russian teacher, started teaching still under the czars in Russia. And he had a circle of people around him, many of whom were the wealthy aristocrats. And then the revolution took place in 1916, 17. And Gurdjieff, with a group of his disciples, fled. And at first they went south through the Caucasus Mountains uh, and then to Europe. And their journey was described in some of the books by his disciples, very difficult time. They were really undergoing a lot of hardship. And one of the women who left with him was from an old aristocratic family, and all that she had taken with her from her former life was this little jewelry box filled with the family heirlooms. And it it was her main connection to her whole past life. 
and things that were very dear to her. And one day, in the middle of all this tremendous hardship, Kirchhoff says to this woman, give them to me. And she was very torn. I mean, on the one hand, she had tremendous respect and love for Gurdjieff as her teacher. On the other hand, it was just that which was most precious. So back and forth, back and forth in her mind, and finally she gives it. She's telling this to another one of her friends. Oh, left out an important part here. (laughs) A couple of days later, he gives it back to her. Okay, she's telling the story to, to one of her friends also in the group. And sometime after that, Gurdjieff asks the friend for the same thing. And the friend says, oh, no problem, I'll give it to him. <laughs> she gave it to him without any you know, to-do. He kept it. <laughs> we have to look at our motives. <laughs> Very important in generosity. Through the power of restraint, as we get less hooked, less caught up, as we create more space for ourselves, begin to see the flow of phenomena, the dance of phenomena, the fact that there's nothing solid, nothing steady, nothing permanent at all in ourselves, in the world, outside. It's all movement. It's all constantly changing. As we create the space to see that, when we're not so locked in, then we also can begin to develop more compassion. Some more metta. It it begins to come more easily because we're not in such a straitjacket. Now, Aldous Huxley, who did a lot of investigation and writing about different spiritual paths and practices, was asked at the end of his life what he had distilled from from all of his study and practice. And he's well known for his cross-cultural comparative religious studies. What was the essence, did he feel, of it all? He said that after a lifetime of study and practice, what he felt to be very essential in all of the practice of spiritual development is simply to learn to be kinder to one another. It's very beautiful. It's so simple. Can we learn to be kinder to one another? Kinder to ourselves it becomes possible, it becomes more possible as we create more spaciousness in the mind. And we create more spaciousness through this power of restraint, of letting go, of conserving, of seeing the impermanence, seeing the insubstantiality. From looking at our experience, looking at our minds carefully, we begin to understand both what it is that's happening and also some of the laws which govern what's happening. Begin to understand the law of karma. 
when we can experience in different ways exactly how the law of karma is working. Not in its totality, but we begin to get experientially some real direct experiences of it in our lives. How it affects the moment, how we retain impressions of past experience, experiencing the karmic results in our lives, beginning to see how each of our actions condition the arising of that very same action again, so we establish patterns. When we see this clearly for ourselves, we begin to see the essential importance of taking care, taking responsibility, that our actions are meaningful, that our actions have results. And when we understand that, understand it deeply, experientially, we begin to appreciate the power of restraint. It's a tremendous force, a tremendous strength for us. Restraint in the sense of letting go of what is unskillful. That is developing that ability to say no to the mind. And the mind wants to do something that's going to cause pain or suffering. That we can learn to say no lovingly and gently and firmly, decisively. We begin to understand restraint as conservation. That we conserve our energy instead of dissipating our energy. We allow it to build. We empower ourselves in that way. We understand restraint as that space of disentanglement so that we can begin to see how everything is arising and passing, to see the ephemeral nature of phenomena, of experience. And as we do this, as these elements or components of restraint grow in us, we create a space. We create an openness in which we can more easily and more creatively and more spontaneously manifest compassionate action in the world. One particular restraint that I would like to encourage all of you to cultivate, particularly in these last two weeks of the retreat, of the intensive practice, um, is the recommitment to silence. Very important. It's important for yourself and your own practice It's important for other people's practice. It's important for the environment of the place. Be very careful with that. There may be strong inclinations or strong desires to begin to um, leak in that way. Be strong with it. Really, Really honor that commitment. It will be a worthy practice of this quality of mind. 
and will bear very great fruit immediately, just in this time. These two weeks are very precious. They're like the dessert. It may not be exactly the dessert you ordered. (laughs) But it's the dessert nevertheless. (laughs) It's like everybody has worked so hard and has built up a tremendous power and you are not even aware of it. And when you're in the middle, you may think, you know, it's just same old stuff. But it's all growing, it's all developing. Don't, don't throw the dessert out. You know, whatever phases you're in doesn't matter. It's still the culmination of this period of practice for you. And in that respect, in that respect, it can be the deepest and the most fruitful. Don't judge it and don't evaluate it. Just be with whatever your experience is in a very full way. And use this last time um, impeccably. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.